This is the Quantum Tech Pod, brought to you by Inside Quantum Technology, covering industry analysis, data, and market forecasting for quantum technology markets worldwide. Now, here's your host, Christopher Bishop. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Quantum Tech Pod. I'm delighted you're all listening. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, depending on where you're sitting on the planet. My guest today is Pete Shadbolt, who's the Chief Scientific Officer at SciQuantum. Pete's also a co-founder of SciQuantum, which is a Palo Alto-based company building a large-scale, general-purpose silicon photonic quantum computer. As Chief Scientific Officer, Pete oversees the application and implementation of technology and scientific-related policies and procedures that are vital to the success of SciQuantum. Pete earned his PhD in experimental photonic computing at the University of Bristol in 2014, and was then a postdoc at Imperial College London, researching the theory of photonic quantum computing. During his time at Bristol, he demonstrated the first ever variational quantum eigensolver and the first ever public API to a quantum processor. His company, SciQuantum, is building the world's first commercially useful quantum computer, which they believe requires fault tolerance and error correction, and therefore at least a million qubits. SciQuantum also believes photonics is the only path to building such a large-scale machine on a sensible time and money scale, and is using silicon photonics-based architecture that enables manufacturing in a conventional silicon chip foundry. We're going to talk about that. Worth noting that the team at SciQuantum is a mix of quantum physicists, semiconductors, systems, and software engineers, as well as systems architects and more. So, Pete, welcome to the Quantum Tech Pod. Delighted you're here. Likewise. Uh, thank you so much for, for having me. So, Pete, I always like to start the podcast by asking my guests to share a bit about their own personal quantum journey, if you will. My objective certainly is to give our audience a sense of what you did before you founded SciQuantum, but also to orient our audience to the fact that there are many ways and various paths that people have taken to get into the field of quantum information science. So can you please share with our listeners a bit about your background and path so far, things like where you grew up. Um, tell us about your work at the University of Bristol and at Imperial College London, and maybe insight into any companies or universities or organizations where you worked before starting SciQuantum. So I've been working on quantum computing for about 10 years. My, together with my co-founders, it's probably a combined 60 years of work on quantum computing prior to founding the company. Jeremy, our CEO, has been working on quantum computing for 25 years. It's really been his entire career. For, for me, myself, I started out actually working on the diametrically opposed approach to building a quantum computer, which is rubidium ions in ultra-high vacuum. So as an undergraduate uh, and a master's student, I worked on floating rubidium ions in ultra-high vacuum, shooting them with lasers, and trying to build uh, quantum information systems that way. And that's, of course, you know, very appealing to physicists and is kind of um, quite distinct from the manufacturable approach that we pursue here. And then I was very fortunate uh, really to be in the right place at the right time. I went and joined uh, Jeremy's group at the University of Bristol, also with Mark Thompson, who's uh, one of the other co-founders here at SciQuantum. And that was right at the point when they had just gotten started putting single photons into chips. Huh. So that yeah. research group at the University of Bristol was first team to take single photons, put them into telecom waveguides, and uh, build qubits that way. 
It's a very simple idea, which is to repurpose the photonics technology that's been developed over the last 25 years um, by the telecom industry. Uh, so they figured out how to uh, lithographically fabricate waveguides on a chip, manipulate states of light uh, with those, uh, uh, those waveguides. And then Jeremy and Mark were the people to say, let's put single photons in there. And that turned out to be a great idea. Uh, so I worked with that group for five years and saw it grow at a very rapid pace. And we had a fantastic time making small demonstrations of qubits, gates, and algorithms on a chip. So as you mentioned, things like uh, quantum chemistry on a chip, uh, controlled knot gates, um, and a whole diversity of basic demonstrations of the science of manipulating photonic qubits. Wow. And so we did that for a while. And then I went to Imperial College. So I switched, I switched from being an experimentalist to being a theorist. And I went to work with Terry and Mercedes and Naomi, who now lead our architecture teams, on the math and the theory of how you build a fault-tolerant uh, optical quantum computer. And at that time, uh, a number of major breakthroughs were made in the architecture. Um, and that really catalyzed uh, the decision to found the company. Wow. So that, thank you for sharing that great story. So the segue is, you know, what led you to found Psyquantum? Was there some epiphany? Um, tell me about the process. I want to say that I heard uh, one of your co-founders and Psyquantum CEO, Jeremy O'Brien, on a recent webinar describing the process. He said that you all left your cushy academic jobs and moved to Silicon Valley and burned the ships when you arrived. I, I, my takeaway was that's a pretty compelling statement of commitment, right? So how did you guys come together and decide to form this company? Yeah, so I think that um, all quantum computing companies emerge from university research groups, pretty much. And they're all at risk of continuing to operate like university research groups. Some uh, professor of physics with an, a successful experimental group gets to the level and uh, maturity that they decide that it's right to start a company. And I think what was different with us and with Psyquantum is that we really made a clean break from that academic mode of operation. So Jeremy and Mark in particular had gotten to a point in their careers where they could publish science and nature papers, you know, with very high frequency. We, we'd shown uh, the basic science worked many, many times. And we had kind of saturated the capacity of a university environment uh, to make progress on the hardware. So all of the basic science worked. Um, and on the architecture side, optical quantum computing had originally been something that didn't work. So prior to 2001, optical quantum computing was um, widely believed to be impossible because photons don't interact. The first um, disproof of that idea uh, came in 2001 from Canilla Flam and Milburn, who showed that in principle, you could overcome that lack of interaction between photons and build a nominally scalable photonic quantum computer, but their proposal was extremely inefficient and completely impractical. And it took 15 years of sustained mathematical work by Terry and various other people around the world um, to turn that into something that was actually practical and kind of the final nail in the coffin arrived in, in 2015 
Uh, and that, yeah, that catalyzed the decision to say, there is no world in which you're going to build a machine of this scale and, and magnitude in a university. The right vehicle uh, to build something like this is a private company. And um, that was the point at which we made a clean break and started something new. And I'm very glad that we did that. Wow. So the, the opening copy on the website says that uh, you guys are building the world's first useful computer. Yeah. So, so I have to con you know, confess that that's a pretty bold claim, given that competitors include companies like IBM and INQ, just went public, right, and Rigetti and even Google. So I, I want to get your take on why you think that is the case. I think there's two. So first of all, let me agree with you. That is a bold claim. You know, I'm excited to be working for a company that's trying to yeah. do something bold. Right? Yeah, yeah so bravo. I agreed. Let me first of all acknowledge that. You know, I hope we still live in a society where you can try to do difficult things. The two words in there that are, of course, interesting are first and useful. And so let me start with useful. So what does it take to make a quantum computer useful? Uh, it takes a million qubits, as far as anybody knows today. 20 years ago, this was known. If you read Jeremy's PhD thesis from 20 years ago, he writes in the conclusion of that thesis that you're probably going to need about a million qubits. Uh, to run useful algorithms on a quantum computer because of the need for error correction. Uh, in my undergraduate education at Leeds, which was excellent, by the way, um, you know, during those introductory quantum information lecture lectures, it was unequivocal. The only reason that we are talking about quantum computing, the only reason that you are studying quantum information is that the threshold theorem exists. It is known that you can perform quantum error correction and suppress errors in a quantum computer and so we have a hope of doing something useful with a quantum computer because of error correction that was really the unequivocal narrative up until about uh 2015 so we worked on uh this variational quantum eigensolver idea and there was a lot of other scientific work getting done at the time like boson sampling um which generated the hope that you might get something done without error correction and with a dramatically smaller machine. And that was always a hope, but I think a lot of people um, really put their eggs in that, in that basket in a serious way. They really um, you know, founded companies in some cases on the hope that you would be able to deliver something useful with you know, 100 qubits and without error correction. And that was a completely defensible bet. Right, we've now seen Google show an extraordinary scientific demonstration that I've been waiting 10 years to see, which is a chip the size of your thumbnail with 53 qubits on it that indeed wins races with a building-sized computer. That's an extraordinary demonstration of genuine exponential power. And the bet that you might have been able to do something useful with that in 2015 was a completely defensible bet, right? And in fact, today, the jury is still out. It is still conceivable that we find something useful to do uh, with such machines. But I think it is fair to say that the uh, general optimism of the scientific community uh, is diminishing as we've you know, searched for five years and found nothing. So the story is still the same. You need a million qubits, you need error correction. And that's what we mean when we say useful. Uh, we, need, we mean a big error corrected quantum computer. And then the second 
word that makes that claim bold is the first. Of course, you know, predicting the future is difficult and I uh, have great respect for my peers uh, from competing organizations who would uh, challenge that claim. But let me make a, uh, an argument for, you know, why we actually believe that we will be the first. And I think the thing to emphasize is that it's not really a question of going faster. You know, we have this approach which leverages semiconductor manufacturing. We feel very fortunate that because our qubits do not require exotic materials, atomic scale fabrication, millikelvin temperatures, etc., we are able to go to a tier one semiconductor foundry, uh, which builds laptops and cell phones, has figured out how to build billions of components and leverage that extraordinary force uh, to accelerate our roadmap. That's nice. That's very helpful. But really, the reason that we think we're going to be first is that the other approaches seem to have profound obstacles that may actually prevent them from reaching the necessary scale uh, for usefulness, i.e. Yeah. a million qubits. Right. So we could elaborate on that. Um, but uh, yeah, it's a bold claim and uh, I'll stand by it. I want to shift gears and talk a little bit about funding for a minute. By the way, congrats on the Series D funding from BlackRock. Very exciting. But in reading about the funding situation or uh, timeline, if you will, more interesting to me was the investment from Microsoft Corp's venture fund M12. Managing director Samir Kumar said that Cyquantum was the venture's first quantum computing investment. So I'd like to learn more about that relationship. So my question is, might we see a quantum Surface Pro 50 at some point, or will there be connection to hardware? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, and first of all, let me just emphasize that um, it's an extraordinary privilege to be able to work on a technology that is, you know, as exotic and novel as this, and to work in an environment where you can actually fund a project that is, of course, unequivocally a moonshot a yeah. technology. So yeah. that's really an extraordinary uh, set of circumstances to find myself in, and I feel very privileged to have that support. And then you ask about Microsoft. So Microsoft actually came in at Series C, and uh, they've um, invested again uh, into this Series D round. And we have always had a great relationship with the Microsoft team, principally because of their extraordinarily strong technical team and their ideology about how you should build a quantum computer. So first and foremost, Microsoft have understood from the very beginning that you're going to need error correction, and they've taken it extremely seriously. That's in two respects. So first of all, on the hardware side, they've pursued a pro an approach that recognizes that you won't get something done with typical physical error rates. So they understood that you're not going to get anything done with a, you know, 0.1% error rate or something. And so they pursued a hardware approach, attempted to mitigate that. And I think it's fair to say that they pursued a very high risk, very high reward approach on the hardware. And I think that's a completely defensible bet. Then on the software side, on the algorithm side, Microsoft is extremely distinguished in having been one of the few groups in the world who has actually done their homework on fault-tolerant resource counting. So there are a ton of people running around the world saying that quantum computing is going to change your industry. 
there are very few people who can actually support those statements. Because to support those statements, you have to calculate how long it is going to take your quantum computer to run a known algorithm for a useful problem size. And that calculation involves very involved analysis of the fault tolerant gate sequences that you have to generate to run that algorithm. And typically involves a whole bunch of very delicate optimization of those gate sequences. And that's homework that most people haven't really bothered to do. Microsoft has, has really done that in a serious way. And so the few examples that the world has of properly accounted applications for quantum computers, uh, a good fraction of those come from that Microsoft group. So let me, let me just summarize. And, and, you know, they've just been very serious about quantum computing for more than a decade. So, yeah, that's a, that's a fantastic relationship. Um, we really appreciate their perspective on, uh, you know, where the priorities actually are. Um, yeah. Of course, we pursue a different approach on the hardware side, um, but that's that's fine. So let's talk. So segue to to follow the thread around software. So let's talk SDKs, right? Are there yeah. limits to the kinds of tools that developers can use to write algorithms for a photonic computer? And and or the following question: Like, are you writing your own software or engaging with partners for this? How does that how does that work at SciQuantum? Yeah. So you asked first of all. Are there constraints or idiosyncrasies specific to Photonic? Um, and then you asked whether we have our own SDK. So as far as constraints and idiosyncrasies, to first order, the answer is no. We're building a universal fault-tolerant quantum computer with a textbook universal gate set, which you would program in exactly the same way as any other textbook quantum computer. So You've got, you know, your Toffoli gates and your CNOT gates and your T gates and the, the standard uh, set of gate operations. And yeah, so, so it's a vanilla textbook machine from a programming okay. point of view. Okay. There are some uh, optimizations that you can make in the, you know, lower level code that takes into account the fact that this is a photonic machine. Uh, there are things that you can do with photons, like move them around over long distances that, uh, in some cases, give you an advantage. But yeah, to first order, it's, it's a textbook quantum computer. And you shouldn't have to worry about the fact that it's photons under the hood. As far as SDKs, yeah, we have a SDK. You can program it in Python, JavaScript, C++. Uh, and we have it in the hands of uh, some of our customers. Back to hardware for a second. So I read that uh, PsyQuantum stuck a deal with Global Foundries that was announced in May um, to build quantum chips at their manufacturing facilities. And I don't think we can understate the potential impact of having a strategic relationship, right, with one of the largest chip fabs in the world. So you're now manufacturing quantum photonic chips as well as the cryogenic CMOS chips that are needed to control the qubits. So share with our listeners how this will give you a competitive advantage when it comes to building, say, a million qubit quantum computer. And do you see yourself selling these chips maybe to hardware vendors at some point? You're right. It is strategically and practically extremely important for us. And actually, we've been working with Global Foundries for more than two years now. And the thing to emphasize, some people appreciate this, but it's, it's a little bit of an esoteric characteristic of our world, which is that you've got to put the qubits on a chip, just practically speaking, 
there's lots of factories around the world that can make a chip. You know, in fact, if you want to, you can make chips in a university clean room. Uh, there's thousands of small R&D-oriented semiconductor foundries that will make chips for you. But the underappreciated reality is that there are really only three tier one semiconductor foundries on the planet. Those are TSMC, Global Foundries, and Samsung. Intel is a special case. Intel got out of the foundry business. They're getting back in. I should probably add them to that list. But the capability of those commercially oriented tier one foundries is massively distinguished from everything else. And that's not only in terms of their ability to build chips in large volumes and at low cost, it is much more importantly in terms of the process control, CD uniformity, line edge roughness, basically their ability to fabricate uh, devices with incredible precision and control. And when we founded the company, we knew from the very beginning, if we want to build millions of devices whose performance meet the stringent requirements of fault tolerance, we would need to build those devices in a tier one production line. Now, that, of course, is challenging given that TSMC, Global Foundries, Samsung are not in the business of doing crazy science fiction stuff like quantum computing. <laughs> right. And so it's been a huge effort for this company and a huge, um, huge milestone to have taken honestly quite exotic quantum devices like single photon detectors and to have now taken that technology to the level of maturity where we can build them in very large numbers shoulder to shoulder with laptops and cell phones in that mature semiconductor manufacturing context. So yeah, we're very proud of that. It's a really, you know, key component of our strategy. And uh it is paying off as far as we can tell. Yeah, fantastic. So let's talk a little bit more about the technology. I have a couple of questions. Um I read that Psyquantum has created a more efficient waveguide, which is used to route photons inside the chip without giving away competitive advantage. Can you describe that a little bit, how that works? Yeah, so, so that's one example of many, many components that go into the system. The waveguide is, is a good example to illustrate why you go to an expensive manufacturing line like Global Foundries. You know, if we, if we wanted to keep things really simple and keep our costs super low, we would go to a small R&D oriented, you know, mom and pop type R&D foundry and make a few chips. The problem is that um, we need very low loss. So we don't want to lose any photons out of the waveguide. And the main way that photons go missing is that you have edges on those waveguides that are not straight. You get some wiggles on the edge of the waveguide roughness, basically. And if you have that, then photons don't stay in the waveguide. They fall out the side. They go missing. And that's actually the primary source of error in a photonic quantum computer is photons go missing. And so it's, it's really a very mundane, practical uh, semiconductor process problem, which is that you want really straight lines. You want super low line edge roughness. And there is then an economic factor, which is well, 
who spent the most money on the most expensive tools to make really, really straight lines? Well, it's the big factories, right? So you yeah, have to right. go there. And so it's pretty, it's pretty simple. Like it's not in the instance, you know, we do have advanced devices like single photon sources and detectors and so on, where we have a lot of design IP and where we do a lot of simulation to optimize the performance of those devices. In the instance of the waveguide, without diminishing the design work that goes on there, you know, the single biggest factor is really, did you use an expensive tool or not? And so uh, we do use expensive tools and therefore we have efficient waveguides. And that's a, you know, very uh, mundane, but extremely important uh, component of what we're doing. Yeah. Does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah. No, thank you for calling that out. Very interesting. One more kind of granular in the weeds question for our listeners. Um, in January of this year, you guys posted to the archive an article introducing what you called fusion-based quantum computing, FBQC is the acronym, a model of universal quantum computation in which entangling measurements called fusions are performed on the qubits of small, constant size, entangled resource states. It says you're using a stabilizer formalism for analyzing fault tolerance and computation. Can you tell listeners more about this and how it might be applicable maybe certainly within PsyQuantum, but maybe more broadly, right, if it's a universal quantum computation model? PsyQuantum hasn't published many papers, and that's because uh, we're a company, not a research group. You've left academia and behind. <laughs> we've left academia behind uh, for a very good reason, which is yeah. that we're interested in actually building a, yeah. a working machine in a hurry. Yeah. Um, Fusion itself is an idea that we've had in the in the in the literature, you know, well before we founded the company. So Terry uh, cooked up that idea, and it's a very simple entangling operation that is not a controlled knot gate. So the hmm. basic entangling operation that we use in photonics under the hood is not a controlled knot gate. Per our previous discussion, we then synthesize the conventional universal gate set at the fault tolerant level using entangled states that are constructed via that um, unusual entangling operation of fusion. Huh. And so, you know, prior to, to the company, to founding the company, we had, uh, Terry and Mercedes and many other people who work here and elsewhere had described a whole diversity of different approaches to the network that you would require to implement fault-tolerant optical quantum computing. Right. One of the most important aspects of such an architecture is the optical depth. Naively, mm. if you think about how you might build a photonic quantum computer, what you might imagine is that you're going to generate single photons. You're going to use those photons to encode qubits maybe in a polarization encoding or in a path encoding as we use on a chip. And then you're going to fly those photonic qubits through a sequence of optical widgets where each widget encodes a gate or an operation that you're trying to do on the computer. So you can imagine this you know, huge long chain of optical widgets. Yeah. You're going to fly these photons through that chain. They're going to come out of the far side you'll measure them and read out the state of the quantum computer. That's a very natural construction, but it has a very serious problem, which is that no optical widget is perfectly transparent. Mm. 
Mm. And so the chance that you get light through a billion optical widgets <laughs> is nil, right? No light yeah. is going to come out the other side. If you imagine a stack of pieces of glass, if you've ever stacked glass, it very rapidly becomes a mirror. And so that's a profound problem. Huh. In fact, what you need is an architecture in which the optical depth, meaning the number of components that the photon traverses in its lifetime, is constant, small, and independent of the problem size. So as you add more qubits hmm. or add more gates to the uh, computation, you can't add more widgets into the path of the photon. And that might seem to be an impossible task. You know, it really seems like a paradoxical requirement. I want a machine where I can run an arbitrary number of serial gate operations, but where the number of components that a photon traverses in its lifetime is fixed and independent of the problem size. And FPQC does that. It is not the first architecture to do that. There were architectures prior to FPQC that meet that requirement. And in fact, Mercedes PhD thesis, which is part of the you know, founding architecture of the company, uh, meets that requirement. What FPQC really does is to do that uh, much more efficiently uh, than, than uh, we had previously been able to do. It's a pretty high-level summary of some of the aspects of the architecture that we pursue. And I would like to emphasize that the level of depth in that paper on the archive is minuscule relative to the sophistication of architectures that we actually develop and pursue inside the company. So we wanted to put something in mm. the public domain that showed the basic characteristics of what we're trying to do. It's important yeah. that people can look at what we are, what we're thinking, but one should also not get the impression that that is the architecture that we pursue. Thank you for explaining that. Appreciate it. Sure. I want to shift gears and talk policy for, for a moment. I know that SciQuantum was among an elite group of companies invited to participate in the White House Summit in early October on quantum industry and society. I want to get your take on you know, what you took away, what the company took away from that conversation, particularly as regards where we are in terms of government support as well as collaboration across the private sector and academia. Yeah, it was a great privilege to be invited to that event. And I think it was an extremely well-organized, well-intentioned, successful event. The biggest thing, the biggest takeaway for me from that event is that when we founded the company, it was really quite an extreme choice for us to say that we exclusively targeted a fault-tolerant machine with a million qubits. Yeah. The status quo in 2015 was to found a company where you would tell venture capitalists that um, you hoped to deliver something useful with a NISC machine and uh, that you were going to build a machine that's about 10 times bigger than what you had in the university. And that maybe at some point in the future, you would do error correction, but we're going to, you know, deliver value with NISC was kind of the, I think it's fair to say like the, the prevailing approach. And we were pretty, you know, we were, we were certainly like an outlier in just sort of bluntly stating that you need yeah. a million qubits and error correction, frankly, uh, explicitly dismissing NISC as a strategy. And five years later, it is awesome to be at the White House and to have uh, Microsoft, Intel, Google, HRL, 
etc one after the other explicitly stating you need a million qubits you need error correction right yeah you were right all along oh brother yeah i mean i want to go and find my old lecturer from leeds and uh tell (laughs) tell him that story yeah yeah um, yeah that that's uh that's i think extremely healthy for the industry i think that been a long time coming but the whole industry is now facing up to that reality you need a really big quantum computer and i think it's only healthy that people are then starting to seriously invest in the non-quantum challenges that raise their head once you recognize that that is the requirement and those non-quantum challenges are things like manufacturability which of course we've spent a lot of time and money on cooling power connectivity control electronics you see these themes now emerging in a serious way and being taken seriously by these um these other organizations i think that's extremely good for the industry and um yeah just the 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 clear um understanding from the government side that quantum computing is potentially a technology that has profound strategic importance and um yeah there's very clear support and and recognition of that we've come to what i i call sort of the inevitable sixty four thousand dollar question which is quote unquote clients right so i read that cyquantum has customers in sectors ranging from healthcare to electronics and transportation and that they're exploring use cases and algorithms for quantum computing and i realize you may not be able to identify specific clients unless you want to white label or anonymize them. But can you give us a sense of the kinds of work you're doing for them and maybe where you're getting traction initially, like what verticals are uh, adopting and understanding the power of this technology? Yeah, so the verticals that you mentioned are exactly right. Um, So transportation, won't surprise anybody to hear that we work on lithium-ion battery, chemistry problems, pharmaceuticals, drug design, we work on materials design, we work on uh, some financial applications, you know, the, the kind of um, the pretty, pretty well-known applications for, for quantum computing. There are a few outliers, but it's no surprise to anyone uh, that we work with whatever Fortune 500 type companies on those, those problems. And we are delighted to have an, a growing roster of customers who are not only enthusiastic about working on quantum computing, but also increasingly technically serious about it. So it's been fantastic to see these large corporations hiring PhDs in quantum information, building teams, and really getting organized around what they're going to do with a quantum computer when it arrives. And in terms of what we actually do with them, what we don't do is take a 10 qubit chip, hook it up to AWS, and make it available uh, to our customers. Fair enough. Yeah. yeah. I think it's. I think it's extraordinary that we live in a world where high school students, undergraduates, whatever, can pay a small amount of money or not and get access to a real quantum processor. I think that's awesome. I think pedagogically, uh, for people who are learning about quantum computing, that's a huge service to the world and tremendously exciting. Like You can really sit in your living room at home and get access to some entangled qubits. Like that's incredible. On the other hand, our customers in the majority of cases, I think it's fair to say, have done that. They've gone and played around with 
handful of qubits online. And I would say that they really learn two things from that. The first thing they learn is it's real. Like there's nothing fake. You know, if the qubits are entangled, we can run gates on them. And the second thing that they learn is we're going to need like millions of qubits, billions of gates, error correction, fault tolerance. And so that that's the context in which um, most of our customers come to us. And so what we actually do is we don't touch the hardware because uh, it doesn't work yet. And instead, we do math and we do fault tolerant resource counting. So we take those applications that customers care about and we do the, you know, in many cases, pretty involved and time consuming work of figuring out whether or not those use cases can achieve a meaningful quantum advantage on a fault tolerant quantum computer of the type that we're building. And as far as we're concerned, that's that's a useful out, output, right? Like if if you, you know, again, there are very, very few algorithms where people have really done this homework. And I think it's pretty weak uh, to live in a world where you say, oh, I reckon quantum computing is going to be awesome. Like you've got to answer the question. You've got to actually do your homework and be able to say, yes, we are absolutely certain that if we were to run this code here on a machine with 1,300,225 physical qubits and a uh, logical error rate of whatever, we would get an answer to this specific problem in an hour and 25 minutes. And that problem is uh, not ever going to be solved on any conventional computer. Making statements of that kind of concreteness and uh, defensibility, I think that's really valuable and uh, worth worth doing. So that's that's what we do with our customers, yeah. Yeah, great. So Pete, I want to, we're coming to the end. I want to, I always like to close my podcast with questions about uh, a topic that I'm passionate about, which is workforce enablement, right? So I want to get your take on the challenges facing a company like SciQuantum and finding talent. Like, since you guys are in the South Bay, it has to make it easier to some degree. You're near Stanford and UC Berkeley, so yeah. schools are nearby, as well as large talent pools you could, in theory, poach from Google or Facebook or Twitter or myriad other startups. But can you tell me a little bit, even at a meta level, about the recruiting process at SciQuantum and what the challenges are that you guys face? Yeah, so we founded the company here in Silicon Valley, despite all four of the founders being British citizens and living in the UK. It's, we thought this was the the best place to start it, and uh, we still think that uh, is the case. We have the majority of our team here in in Silicon Valley, but we also have a growing number of people all around the world. I think we so you hear a lot about uh, challenges of, of finding talent in quantum computing. I think we are a little um, distinct in that respect, in that a large fraction of the people that we need to do the work are not quantum people at all because you know we're not really developing the or we're not really um going back to our previous discussion right what's what's stopping us from delivering a quantum computer well one of the things that we need to improve is loss how do you improve loss well you need to reduce your lineage roughness you need to make less wiggly lines is that a problem for which you need a phd in quantum information or experience programming a 10 qubit quantum processor, categorically no. That's yeah. a task for which you want somebody with um, serious semiconductor manufacturing experience 
of which of course there are lots of lots of people in in the valley and and elsewhere so i don't want to downplay the challenges we hire lots of phd's in quantum information experimental quantum optics people cryogenics people you name it superconducting device people and finding those people is challenging but i would also say that psyquantum has a slightly uh, unusual profile in that we are heavy on non-quantum people also. Well, thank you, Pete. This has been a great conversation. Um, I want to close by inviting people to follow you on LinkedIn, uh, point them to your website, right? It's psyquantum.com. You have a Twitter handle as well, at psyquantum. Yeah, the Twitter is great. If you check out the, the, our Twitter account, it's like one of the most, one of the best, best Twitter accounts going cool. absolutely yeah okay well, that sounds great i'm joking and, there's, not, there's nothing on it <laughs> you're joking there's nothing on it okay well i saw that you do have a handle so um yeah what about a group on linkedin i mean yes i think uh there is there is some content on linkedin yeah yeah okay again just to encourage people to uh connect with you and the company and learn more about what you're doing so pete thanks for joining me today and thanks to all of you for listening it was a great conversation i enjoyed it Likewise, it's a real pleasure. Uh, thank you so much for, for taking so much of, of your time and re really appreciate it. Yeah, thank you. No, you're very welcome. Delighted to speak with you. Thanks again, Pete, for joining me today. Thanks to all of you for listening. Please share this podcast on your social media channels to increase the impact of my conversation with Pete, increase awareness of what PsyQuantum is doing, their innovative approach to photonic quantum computing. Listen to my other podcast episodes if you haven't already. Please connect with me on LinkedIn. I want to mention that this has been a production of Inside Quantum Technologies. You've been listening to the Quantum Tech Pod, brought to you by Inside Quantum Technology. For more information on this episode or other topics relating to quantum technology, visit InsideQuantumTechnology.com.